Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Vision for You Big Book Study Group. Today is Sunday, July 21st, 2019. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater living in Wilsonville, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, July 19th, 2019 are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting is 13178. 13178. And please take special note that the 7 a.m. Eastern Time Share ID number is a correction today from the announced and recorded number on Friday. For the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting, the Share ID number is 13177. 13177. And don't be confused. The 7 a.m. because of the correction is a higher number than the one that followed, which is 13177. So there's a brain twister for you this morning. Talk about twisted thinking. This morning, A Vision for You presents Power Flows Just Where You Need It. We are as confused as they come when we walk into the rooms of OA, many of us. Power? We got power. We have muscled our way through many of life's ups and downs and all arounds. The confusion isn't about power, or so we think. It's about the diet, the weight, the depression. That's what's licked us. We are certain it is something along those lines anyway. We say that our minds work well, and we are strong to have lived through what we have so far. We reasoned well, of course. We know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and we've passed driver's exams and even bar exams and medical school and rocket science, some of us. This can't be any more complicated than that. Just apply the mind. We have lived through sickness, births and deaths, divorces and scandals of all those things that, throw, that life throws at us, you know. And we are living, sort of, through addiction, aren't we? So perhaps we came to just get the confusion sorted out and off we go. But soon we found that our thinking was good in some areas and not what it might be in other areas. Yes, we had some kind of abilities, and maybe that was power, to get to the end of our set goals. But we lacked the power drive to address this disease, and man, oh man, did we need it in this area badly. Story after story in the big book tells of how members of fellowship came back from the brink of death to find life again, and because of power, with a capital T. Power to take from... Take one from where we were to where we can be living fully again, thinking more broadly from a different point of view, awakened by power. We were asleep comparatively before. Power, power, spiritual power. The big book was written for you and for me to finally find this power and is greater than any one of us. That spiritual power put us together actually this morning. It is on loan as long as we plug, we, are, we stay plugged into it. On page 45 of this big book, you will read just this fact. We study daily and diligently together to keep this fact fresh in our minds. We will not have to read f- far and, and long to find the guide to where this power is. It's a roadmap of sorts. This morning, one of the members here in A Vision for You has read studied, and applied the details of this guide map in her life through what, excuse me, with the fellows in this big book study group, and is here to tell us about her personal encounter with power. 
She will reveal to us how this power came to be utilized in her life and how it moves to target precisely where it is needed. That is the promise of this 12-step method of recovery. I personally cannot wait to hear the account of her recovered life as a result of this power targeting exactly precisely where it needs to go. Here to join us today to present Power Flows Just Where You Need It is Lynn S. Lynn has been a loyal member of Vision for You for a number of years and a faithful fellow in service so generously and routinely filling the much-needed positions of the daily workings of this study group meeting. And for that, a Vision for You is truly, truly grateful. Lynn S. Hales from Toronto, Canada, and has challenged the barriers of international calling to this bridge line for many, many days to make it here to each meeting daily. Bravo for you for that. So let's join together in a warm welcome, albeit muted, to our fellow Lynn S. this morning. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning, Melanie C., and thank you for such a lovely uh, introduction. And good morning, Vision. My name is Lynn S. And I am a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. And I must admit, when I said to Leah, you know, there's anything I can do to help out, please let me know. I was kind of thinking like maybe reading the steps or reading the traditions or moderating now and again. Holy moly. <laughs> a special edition, I'll tell you, that's like 15 three-minute shares. But um, anybody who knows me knows I have no trouble talking. So. It should be okay. Anyway, I've been doing a lot of studying this past year, really deeply devoting myself to the big book and to the 12 and 12. And one line kept speaking to me so strongly. And this is out of step three in the AA 12 and 12. And it says, Power flows just where it is needed. Silently and surely, God, that strange energy so few people understand, meets our simplest daily needs and our most desperate ones too. I did take a little bit of liberty with that, but um, that's how I found my experience to be in OA, especially the last five years that I've been involved with vision. And again, especially the last two years where I have really devoted myself to um, a spiritual study. And that has uh, made a huge change in my life. Anyway, the big book asks us to state what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And I'd like to um, do that with a brief history. I don't want to make a big binge log about this, but I think it's always important that we do know where we came from, and it's a good reminder for me. I've been in program since May the 9th, 1989. And I came in, I don't know what my weight was. I don't know what it is now, because the numbers drive me absolutely bonkers. But I do know that I am maintaining a 140-pound weight loss. And I just said that. I don't like the way I said it. What I mean is, through God's grace, 140 pounds have been released from my body, and they stayed off even during an eight-year relapse. How that happened, I'll never know. 
it's just the grace of God. But that's the whole point for me in program. It's all God. It's all about God. And what my job is to do is to every day work the program like my hair is on fire. So that I can ensure I've done the footwork to remove what blocks me from God. And actually what I do is I do the footwork. God removes it. But I have to do the footwork. If I don't, there's nothing he can work with. And that's the trick. Anyway, I came in the program. I'll never forget the moment standing in my kitchen, cutting up my celery and carrot stick. Must have been Tuesday because there was two ounces of cottage cheese staring in me in the face. I hate cottage cheese, but it was Tuesday and that's what you eat. And I can remember I was putting caraway seeds in the cottage cheese to try and make it a little bit different because I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I had those, that one big tear coming out, out of my eye like Demi Moore in Ghost. And I can remember thinking, it can't be that God looked down and said, I want the whole world to be happy except for you, Lynn Skilling, and I want you to be utterly miserable. There's something wrong with me. That was my first spark of a divine inspiration because I didn't have any religious training. I didn't believe in God. In fact, I mocked those who believed in God. But I remember that thought coming so clearly to me. And that was my my start of my journey, I had three things to do for me to lose weight and get this weight thing under control. And one was those um, meal programs, you know, where you pay them a lot of money and they send you meals. And I went to that uh, appointment I had set up already to write a $1,000 check, one of hundreds that I'd spent on weight loss, and the counselor never showed up. So that was one. And the second one was my eating buddy who I had met at my psychotherapist for weight loss. The weight was just falling off her. She said had some kind of a food allergy and she'd be stuffing her face. And I could see the weight falling off her. So I wanted a food allergy as well. So I had an appointment with this doctor and he did his needle test and said, you're absolutely right, you're allergic to veal. Who's allergic to veal? Like, what? What is that? So that didn't work. And the third thing was OA. So I went to the meeting, and I don't have good memories of the meeting, and I'm not going to repeat them here because I I wasn't thinking clearly, and who knows? But what I do know was I heard something there that really spoke to me, and it was ask, thank God for what you want, as if you already have it. So I drove home from the meeting, and I thanked God for letting me sleep through the night without having to get up and go and buy food, because every night I would go to bed, and I would load the passenger side of the bed with food, hopefully enough to knock me out and let me sleep through the night, but it never was, and I always would wake up at two or three, and I had to push my arms a special way into the bed to get me up and out. I would tuck my moo down a pair of sweat pants and head to the all-night gas station 
and explained to the man there who didn't speak English that the twins had sent me out or they needed or there was a party and I had to come and get supplies. And there I am standing there, 140 pounds overweight with food literally sprinkled all over the chest of the moo, buying junk. And who was I kidding? But I had to save face. I couldn't admit that I was doing this to myself. And hopefully I'd buy enough food to get me home, get me back up to bed and knock me out. So this night I went to sleep without loading the bed and without taking the gravel because I'd use that to knock myself out too. And I said my prayer. And then there it was again. My eyes flew open and I swung my legs over the side of the bed and I thought, well, that didn't work. Here we go again. And I looked at the clock and lo and behold, it was seven in the morning. I had slept the night through and I had a spiritual experience like Bill describes. I was, I was so amazed so in awe of the power of God, so in awe of what had happened for me just by asking and thanking God. I couldn't believe it. And that was the start of my God run for a long time. For about a year, I think, I was on the pink cloud of OA and the pink cloud of God-inspired abstinence. I understood from coming to OA and being with a really great group of people that in order to be abstinent, I had to identify my binge food, and even more importantly for me, my binge behaviors, and to put those down. And what what an exciting event that was for somebody like me, who had always been fat. My earliest memory is me in diapers, bending down over this yellow cookie box with a cutout circle on the top, and there were cookies in there. And I can remember reaching one, but I also remember sneaking it. I knew I wasn't supposed to, but I was anyway. And growing up as a fat kid, talk about the complete demoralization and annihilation annihilation of anything good in life. So awful. Parents fighting over the kid and the weight, grandparents getting involved, kids teasing as only as cruel as they can be, being fat, never fitting in. It's it's a unique experience, you know, to, to grow up as a fat child, but always being completely demoralized by the age of five, knowing there was no hope for me, I would never fit in. I would always be on the outside looking in because I couldn't do what the other kids did. I couldn't run and I couldn't play. It hurt too much. And every birthday with birthday cake was a reminder that you can't have that, you're too fat, but we'll give it out to the other kids. And it just just goes on and on like that. There's no need even to rehash it. If you've been a fat kid, you'll know. If you weren't, you'll never get it. But those of us who grow up like that knew what it was like. For my sweet 16th birthday party, my grandparents gave me a 
fellowship to Weight Watchers. And that was the first time I'd ever successfully lost any weight. And it was my first 100-pound weight loss. And from then and for the next 20 years until I came into program, my whole life was either gaining 100 pounds or losing 80 pounds or maybe gaining 120 and then losing 35, gaining another 10 and a big loss. Let's lose 100 this time. This time it will be different. Now I know, now I've got it. And for a nanosecond, I would be at ideal weight or goal weight. I'll never forget sitting so properly in my nice new thin clothes, black pants, white top, sitting there with a cup of tea and a cookie on the plate. And my dad walking in me looking said, oh my God, what are you doing? And I said, it's okay. I'm at goal weight. I can do this now. I've got it. Well, I've got it all right. That was the start of yet again, another 100 pound or so weight gain. Finally, when I hit the morbid obesity that, you know, up and down can bring you. And I didn't think there was any other way for me. I found a surgeon who was willing to perform an intestinal bypass. But in order to do that, you had to go through psychological testing. And I'll never forget the uh, psych doctor coming to see me and saying, you know, patient is morbidly obese, you know, 23 years old, and there's no hope for her. And, and when he came back out into the room, I was crying. And he said, what's the matter with you? I'm sure you've heard that before. Well, you know, I really hadn't heard anybody clinically diagnose me as morbidly obese. I knew what I was. I knew I was just a fat slob who couldn't control their eating. I mean, my goodness gracious me, everybody in the world eats. But I can't stop eating. I can't control it. It's like breathing. Everybody can do it, but I can't. And I knew I had to be the lowest of the low, the most moral degenerate ever on earth that I had to go and have part of my intestines cut out or clamped off to make me somewhat of a normal person. And so I did that. And I'm sure for people who might be a heavy or moderate eater that that would work. But when you're a compulsive overeater of my sort, having bits of your body clamped off or taken off doesn't make any wood of difference because it doesn't address the problem. And the problem is an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. So that dealt with neither. And of course, I lost some weight, and then it went right back up because I continued to eat the way I had always eaten. So life went on and more weight loss and weight gain and weight loss and weight gain until finally that moment in the kitchen and I came to Overeaters Anonymous. And I heard for the first time in my life the answer to the problem. There was something wrong with me to be sure. Finally, thank God, I knew what it was. I have an allergy of the body, which means when I ingest certain substances, which for me 
is something like a sandwich. I have to say, the thought of something between two pieces of bread is orgasmic to me, and the top of my head flows right off, and I can't imagine it. And the thicker the bread, the better. Lots of people can eat sandwiches in programs, but I can't. I knew there was a bunch of other foods as well, but what was most important to me was the binge behaviors. The pattern of meals on wheels, eating in my car, can't do it. Sitting on the couch like a magnet, stuck on the couch. Food, television, what a great binge place. I can't do it. I can't eat watching TV. I can't eat on the couch. Standing in front of the fridge with the door open, looking like I'm searching for the Holy Grail or the answer to the universe. Drinking out of containers to this day and from that moment, I could not drink anything out of a bottle. I have to have a straw because that's been the behavior for me. No picking or popping anything. Everything I eat has to be eaten with a utensil. All these things were so clear to me. They just came tumbling into my mind. Because that's how I lived for 36 years and it didn't work. Everything I did was eating this huge, terrible, compulsive, impulsive addiction of mine. But there was a way out. And this was the most miraculous thing. And the way was God. I remember standing in my kitchen saying that morning when I, when I awoke and got out of bed and I'm standing here and I'm going, God, I don't know what to eat. Because every single thing that I put in my mouth leads to a binge. So what will I eat? I have no idea. And I remember standing there and the voice I heard told me one slice of bread, it wasn't even bread, one slice of toast and one tablespoon of peanut butter. So I thought, well, okay, you know, I, I know I got this bread thing going on, but okay. And that's been my breakfast since May the 9th, 1989, with a couple of exceptions if I was traveling and couldn't get that. Now I know I take my one piece of bread with me everywhere and one tablespoon of peanut butter. And no matter where I am, whatever city, whatever country, and I've traveled the world, Whatever airport, I find somewhere, somebody who will please toast this slice of bread for me and I am able to get my breakfast. It, it's amazing. The grace of God is, is truly astounding in this program. That was my start with food. It was very clear to me what I could eat and what I couldn't eat. It was extremely clear to me what behaviors I couldn't do anymore. And when it wasn't clear and I did something that was a behavior or I ordered something that I put a forkful in my mouth and the top of my head blew off or the food was dancing on the plate, I knew, don't touch it. For whatever reason, I can't touch that food. And I would let it go, let it pass. It's not worth it to me to put my abstinence on the line for any food or to put my abstinence on the line for any behavior. Recovery can be tough. It is a gift from God. 
relapses a lot tougher, let me tell you. My relapse started after 17 years in program. I started to become lackadaisical. I don't know if that's the word I really wanted, but uh, the stuff wasn't important as it used to be. Stopped doing a lot of the do things. Volume started becoming a problem. And then I started lying about it, to be perfectly honest. And I went through an eight-year relapse that was the worst experience of my life. And in that eight years, I had moments of recovery. I had one two-year medallion and two one-year medallions of white-knuckled, stark-raving abstinence. No recovery, but white-knuckled, stark-raving, mad abstinence. And I can remember at one medallion standing up at the lectern and in tears saying, I don't understand how I've made it through this year because nothing's any different and I feel terrible. And during that eight-year period, I tried my hardest to get this thing back. I tried so hard. And nothing that I had done before worked anymore. One of the hardest things I had to do was become teachable because I knew, the, knew it all. I mean, I was Lynn S. from Moe, for heaven's sake. I knew how to do this thing backwards and forwards. I could quote the big book upside down. But it's not about knowing what page number something's on. It's not about knowing the history of AA. It's not about all these trips here and there and everywhere and, you know, following this conference and that conference. All of those things are great. But what it is, it's about developing a relationship with a power greater than yourself that I choose to call God. Putting the food down, putting the binge behaviors down, and working these steps the program, the way it's outlined in the first 164 pages of our beloved textbook, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, working them like your hair is on fire because your life's at stake. That's what promotes recovery. And I wasn't doing it. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't get it. So finally, at the end of this period, I was standing in a parking lot and I was eating out of the garbage because I had put my binge foods in the garbage of that parking lot before I went into a meeting. And I remember turning to my sponsor and saying to her, I'm in deep trouble. Well, don't you know, she didn't give me the time I felt I deserved. This happened, she was speaking that night for somebody else's medallion, but it's all about Lynn S., don't you know? So I took a front. I took umbrage. And after the meeting, I hung around, but she was busy talking to this one and that one. And I got really mad. 
And I went into that parking lot. I could see her 30 feet away from me talking to the person whose medallion we were supposed to be celebrating. And I went through that parking lot garbage can. And my food was still there in a bag. And I picked it up and I opened that bag. And I stood there staring at her, daring her to turn around. And I stuffed my face. And that was the start of my last binge that I can remember, though, truly binging at someone. And I ate at her and I went home and I ate all weekend. And that Sunday I was leaving to go to a spa. And it was a spa that cost a fortune. And I could not believe that I was heading to that spa after binging my face off all weekend. That was definitely not how I wanted to spend the eight or $10,000 this was costing me. But more important, it was costing me my life. And I can remember as I checked into that spa, I remember saying, God, I don't know what is going to become of me. I feel like I'm Evie kind of in a way, and I'm not equating myself with Evie at all. I don't mean that, but I've done and tried everything I can. And people are going to say, whatever happened to Lynette? You know, like, whatever happened to her? She used to be around and somebody would say, oh, you know, she choked on a Twinkie or something. Like, she helped all these people, but she went into relapse and could never get it back. And I can remember saying, God, I know, I know that you are the only way out for me. And I know the 12 steps are the only way for me. And I can't do it. I just can't do it. And I don't know what to do. And I remember going up to my room. And the reason I had mentioned Ebby was, you know, like, Ebby was the man who came and he gave the message to Bill. But Ebby couldn't stay sober himself. And it wasn't until the last year of his life that he sobered up. And I had tried so hard for eight years and I couldn't get this thing back. I remember going up to the room and I remember sitting at the desk and I began to write out the 12 steps by memory. And it was an incredibly cathartic experience for me. And I wrote them out. And I honestly felt at that moment like I was taking them as I was writing them. And I remember saying, God, I need your help because I cannot do this. I don't know whatever is going to become of me. And I, I give up. I, I give up. I just don't know what to do. No, I don't know why that was the moment that I got recovery. I don't know what was different then, what was different than any of the other times. But I really do believe that that power of God flowed into me just where it was needed. My sponsor often says to me, Lynn, you were willing. And oh my goodness, I hated that because all I'd heard through the annals of OA all the time was pray for the willingness to be willing, to be willing, to be willing, to be willing. And I thought, this is life and death. This isn't, to me, that was a mockery. It really was. But she said, Lynn, you're misunderstanding willingness. What willingness is, is doing it anyway even when you don't want to, 
even when you don't believe it, even when it goes against every fiber of your being, but you do it anyway. And she said, you're willing. You're willing to let go of everything that you did before that you thought was the answer. You're willing to let go of AA. She told me I couldn't go to AA, and so I've never gone again since. So for over five years, I haven't been to AA. The reason she told me that was I lived for AA. I lived and breathed AA, but I didn't. OA. OA was the poor sister, the weak one, the one who couldn't get us, that program that just wasn't was. She said, but Lynn, you're in OA. You've got to join OA and be a member. This is your fellowship. And I did. And all those preconceived notions I had about OA and how there was no strength in OA, I'm speaking to them in a meeting that has over 5,000 members. As I'm speaking to a group of people, many of whom are in recovery, who was I to have such a judgment? Well, that was me. I'm just taking a moment to reflect on that particular moment, sitting in that room, in that spa, where my life changed, where I had another spiritual awakening. And my whole life did change while I was at that spa. I felt the power of God flow in and through me. I had a physical change, physical being. For whatever reason, I went vegan, but that doesn't matter. That's not how you become abstinent. But what happened was the desire to binge was lifted at that moment. Again, I have experienced that twice in my life. The food was then totally quiet. I had an emotional and spiritual rearrangement of my thinking. I became totally God conscious of God speaking to me. God also told me I was going to quit work. And I thought, quit work? Now, this has been something that I had been trying to do for years and planning, and I was going to go this and that, but I couldn't do it then. I had to have all these things set in place. God said, that's right, you're going to quit work. And I thought, I can't quit work. Like, quit work is, I quit. And I thought, I don't want to go out that way with all that anger and resentment. Well, then you can resign, maybe, I thought to myself. Resign? No, that's resignation, like I'm resigning. I can't do this anymore. I can't work with these people. And God's voice ever clearly said to me, no, but you can retire. And I went, retire? That's it. I can retire. And God, when is this going to happen? And he said, right now. And it did. No questions asked. No fear. This wasn't me, and this wasn't me. I need to stress this so much. This wasn't me acting as if. I can't do acting as if. I acted as if my whole life, and it never worked for me. It was always me trying to be what I thought you wanted me to be or what I was supposed to be in that situation. There was no acting as if in this one for me either. There was a deep, knowing that came from God 
that this was his plan for me and the strength and the ability to carry it out. I left that retreat. I went back to work. I resigned from, sorry, I retired from my job. I gave them six weeks notice because I had some stuff I wanted to finish. And it didn't get finished. And it didn't matter. Because there was no questioning in my mind. This was the story. This was to be my experience. This was my direction. I felt it in my soul. Power flowed just where it was needed to let me tell the three bosses that I worked for that I was retiring. One was quite upset, one was in shock, and one was thrilled for me. And it was tough. I didn't want to let Jamie down. I didn't want him to be annoyed with me. But more importantly, I knew in every fiber of my being that this was what I was supposed to do. Just like I know in every fiber of my being what my abstinence is. Just like I know in every fiber of my being what my binge behaviors are and that I don't perform them. But how did all this come to be? How did I get this great God connection? By working the program of Overeaters Anonymous, the way it is outlined in the first 164 steps of this book. And I must say, one of the biggest struggles I have had in program is marrying what my sponsor tells me and listening to vision. Because my sponsor isn't a visionary. And my sponsor doesn't believe in the edict of working this as fast as possible. Working this like your hair is on fire, you betcha. And what I take that to mean for me is this is life and death limb. And I have to work it as if it is life and death. Because it is. But my sponsor kept holding me back and holding me back and not racing through the steps. For me, where I was having, what, 28 years of program then, I don't know, whatever 31 is minus 5, having that, I needed to have a really solid foundation because my foundation, the way I had built it, we'd proven it had crumbled. It didn't support any more recovery. I needed to unlearn what I knew for sure because everything I know for sure isn't so. And I had to build a new foundation with God's help that would support the recovery that I need for this life and death disease I have so that I could work the steps. I could ask God to remove what was blocking from me. I could ruthlessly face my sins and ask him to remove them root and branch. That's the way I needed to do it. I think what's really, really important is that everybody works the steps, like their hair is on fire, 
do what they need to do for their recovery, but work them. Because it's here, it's available for all of us. God's power has been in my life so many times. There's a few examples I want to point out because their significance is so deep for me. One of the one pivotal ones is when my mom was dying. And my mom and I did not have a good relationship. Um, my mom wanted a mother-daughter relationship so badly, as did I, but we were just chalk and cheese. And I was a fat kid growing up, and my mother did everything she could to try and help me not being a fat kid growing up. And if you've been a fat kid, having parents try to help you, in my experience, wasn't a loving and comforting experience at all, but it was threats and humiliation and splitting swans and TV dinners and being dragged to doctors and being made fun of and uh, being paid to lose weight, being punished if you didn't, all in an effort to try and help a child who is so unhappy. And of course, none of it worked. So my mom and I didn't have a good relationship. I would walk in the house and my dad would say, you come in the house and you head for the fridge and your mother takes the tranquilizer. And that was true. That was true. And I went even, I'm not a very good person. I don't have a good experience with therapy, but I did go once or twice. And I remember some woman handing me a bat and telling me to whack a pillow. And, you know, that would make it better. More humiliation. It didn't make anything better. It certainly didn't make the relationship with my mom any better. But coming into OA, I heard a wise man say, you know what? I love my mom. I just don't like what she thinks, says, or does. And that was my experience with my mom as well. Such a huge shift that gave me. But what also changed was by working the steps, the way they're outlined in the book, I was able to make amends to my mom. I had to do it three times. First time was, you know, how we do willy-nilly running around making amends to everybody, and it meant nothing. The second time was a better try. But still, there was some stuff left to clean up. And the third time was a heartfelt, sincere amends to my mother for what our relationship had been like based on how I had treated her. I am so grateful for that. I was able to look after my mom as she was dying the last eight years of her life with dementia. And I will never forget in the car her turning to me and looking and saying, oh, Lynn, it's you. I feel so safe with you. That broke my heart with joy that I was able to be a comfort to my mother, this woman that I had made so miserable for so many years. And when my mom was dying, the day of her death, she came into her right mind. And I remember walking into the hospital room and my dad was on the phone trying to reach me saying, come quick, your mom's here. And I walked in. And my mom turned and looked at me and said, oh, Lynn, it's so good to see you. And it was in her voice. 
I was shocked. And I was able to spend time with my mom. And my mom looked at me and she said, was I a bad mother? And I said, no, you were a great mom. And she said, wasn't I mean? And at that moment, if it had been years before, I would have been able to tell her every single affront and bad thing I had thought she had ever done, thought, or said to me and listed them in order and raked her over the coals. And what came out of my mouth was, no, you were the best mummy in the world, and I meant it, and my heart was full of love for her. Power flowed just where it was needed, and it was sincere. I wasn't holding my tongue watching it. I wasn't trying to come up with the answer that, like, to act as if I was a good, loving daughter. I didn't need to. I had the power, and the power was God. My mom died that night, and I was given the best gift in the world. And I had prayed many times for God to please take her. Please take her. This life is so awful for her. And he never did. And I was annoyed. I couldn't understand why he wouldn't. Now I know. Thank you, God, I didn't get what I prayed for. Thank you, God, I got the gift that God wanted me to have. also another story. Um, if you're in Canada, you can relate to this. I'm talking about Bell Telephone, but if you are like most of the listeners in the States, I'm sure you know what it's like dealing with a utility company. And for months, I had been trying to sort out the Bell Bill. I could never sort out the Bell Bill. No matter how many times I had phoned, no matter how many reassurances I had received, no matter how many people I spoke to, it was still double or triple the amount that Bell had quoted me. So finally, I just, I gave up. I really gave up. I thought, I can't deal with this right now. So the bill that was supposed to be $150, I paid $334 and thought, I can't deal with it right now, but I will. And I remember speaking to somebody and saying, you know, I just don't have the gumption to go through this one more time. But what I can do is I can phone them and try and figure out how to see my bill online. That I can do at least. And so let's get that sorted out and we'll leave the rest for another time. So I got online and I got somebody to help me and this woman who happened to be in a call center in the Philippines was just lovely. And she and I were speaking on the phone, and I said to her, I'm just trying to understand how to see my bill. I can't seem to do it. And we talked, and, you know, we got me online, and we got the bill open. And I said, well, that's fantastic. And I said, but it's not this bill I need to see. It's the previous one, because that's where I'm having a problem. I didn't want to deal with the problem. I just wanted to be able to open the bill. And the two of us, within half an hour, were able to figure it out, and there we were, and I could see it. And as I saw the bill, I said, I was able to say to the lady, I don't understand what this charge was. And so we started working through it together. And in the end, this woman was able to help me. I didn't have to go to the 
supervisor who had been especially appointed to my case because of all the problems. But this woman in the Philippines and myself in Toronto, both having a cup of tea on the phone, were able to sort out my bell bill. And in fact, she and her supervisor, who was also involved because she was checking some answers with them, were able to find out that I had been overcharged yet again on something else. So a $330 phone bill was reduced to $43.25. I didn't have to get stroppy or argumentative, as I can do in dealing with situations like this. And I remember speaking to a dear friend in program saying, why do I get so intense over this? Why do I get so upset? And she said to me, because you're fighting for your life, Lynn. And that was the truth. I don't need to fight for my life anymore. There is no fight left in me anymore over stuff like this. But the power flowed just where it was needed. Silently and surely, God, that strange energy so few people understand, met my simplest daily needs and my most desperate ones too. And I was able to deal appropriately and well, kindly and considerate with tolerance and patience to this other human being on the phone. Things like that always astound me when they happen. That is not my natural way of doing things. What I do know is I lead a life now better than I ever could have imagined. My food is quiet. My binge behaviors are down. I'm living a life, a retired life that I had no idea how to do, and I'm happy. And I'm coming into my own and being retired. And I'm enjoying program and the working of program more than I ever have before. And the last year and my and a half, I have devoted myself to a spiritual way of life that the steps and my reading have led me to that has completely changed my life. But it never would have happened. If I hadn't put the food down, if I hadn't looked for and acknowledged my binge behaviors, if I hadn't turned to God and asked him to direct my life, and I do that every single morning, I ask God, I humbly offer myself to him to build with me and to do with me as he will. I unreservedly place myself under his care and direction. Of myself, I am nothing. Without him, I am lost. I ruthlessly face my sins and become willing to have him remove them, root and branch. And I read that. That's in Bill's story on page 13. 
to me, it, it could be the beginning of the third step prayer. I'm not sure, but right now it's my daily prayer. I am so grateful for the life that I have now, and I can honestly say that every day that I live is better than the one before. And I thank Leah and Melanie for giving me this opportunity today. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Lynn. Very, very thorough indeed. We will ask Lynn um, after the conclusion of the Q&A for her contact information, so you may want to stay close for that. Also, the share ID number for this presentation today is 13181. 13181. So yes, the lines are now open for questions. If you have a question for Lynn, Please unmute your phone by pressing star 1 on your phone keypad. Offer your first name and the first letter of your last name. And once you've asked your question, would you please remute your phone right away? Who would like to ask Cynthia. Lynn ask a question this morning? Cynthia. Melissa. Cynthia and Melissa. Kathy M.R. Kathy M.R. Is that it this round? Okay, so we have Cynthia C, Melissa C, and Kathy M.R. Hey, good morning, Cynthia. Your question, please, for Lynn. Um, Thank you so much, uh, everybody, for making this meeting possible. Lynn, thank you so very much for your share that was moving and meaningful and and spoke directly to my heart. Um, My question is, if you could, it's really a, your relationship, it shows how strong your relationship is with your higher power and your um, depth of surrender. And I guess I'm wondering, could you talk in a little bit more detail what your 11th step looks like each day in the morning and at night? A little bit more detail? Thank you. So that I'll pass. Sure. Thank you for asking. Um, when I get up in the morning, I have my time with God. And I sit down and I... I uh, Journal, I guess, is the word for it. But I start every morning writing to God. And it's funny. I I was never good at write a gratitude list. It was, to me, it was like acting as if, you know, write down these things you're grateful for. But I can tell you that the first, I don't know, the first 10, 15 lines of my writing is all gratitude to God, but not Forced. I don't know how to explain this any different, but it pours out of me. I am so grateful to God for all the things that are happening in my life. And I, I don't know how else to um, explain it, but I do know that I never was able to sit and write a gratitude list. It doesn't work that way for me because it's all almost cerebral and I'm searching for things and one of the best things that I've learned and I give my sponsor kudos from for this because it was always in my head I was always in my head I was always in my head I could quote every single page of the big book and tell you what line it was and all that jazz when it really made a difference for me is when it dropped in my heart so I do that from there I have a 
from that writing once once the gratitude has finished coming out i have an oa reader that i read i think it's called for today i never look at the front of it it's white and i read that and that gives me some thoughts on the morning or on the reading i also have a little spiritual book from a church i used to attend gives me a daily devotion and i read that often that will perhaps have a scripture or something which then leads me the Bible, and that's just for me. I happen to look it up in there, and often I get lost in the Bible going back and forth, or I will search out another online site. So I spend quite a long time doing that. Um, I also happen to be eating my breakfast while I'm doing that, and one toast, one piece of toast, and one tablespoon of peanut butter can take me 45 minutes or an hour to get through because I'm lost in this meditative time with God. That's what my mornings look like. The rest of the day, a lot of God focus and God consciousness. I read again at lunch while I'm eating my lunch. Always something spiritual. At night, I don't have a prescribed at night God-specific moment. I'm in another fellowship and I do some reading and writing on on the steps then. And And that's truly God-focused, but I think mostly it's my conscious time in the morning and my conscious throughout the day, and then, of course, speaking with sponsors and other people in program is always a God-filled moment. I hope that helps. Thanks so much, Cynthia, for the question and the answer, Lynn. Thank you. Melissa C., your question, please, for Lynn. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service, Melanie, and... um, God, Lynn, thank you. Your your shower, share was really powerful and related to so much. I think we have the same mother and same sponsor. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about your sponsorship. You know, how do you, um, do you sponsor people the way that your sponsor sponsored you? Or do you sponsor people uh, closer to the way that you hear on the lines? Thanks. Boy, Melissa, you hit the nail on the head on my personal dilemma in programs, let me tell you. Um, what I will say is this. I, I'm trying with one sponsee the vision way, if you get what I mean. I'm talking about timing. And the reason that I'm doing that with her is she has a long-term background in program and also in um, FA. Uh, so she's not just brand new to program. And she went to the Harlan weekend, and the Harlan weekend saved her life. There's no doubt about it. So because of that, I'm trying the vision way with her, and we were just working her fourth step, and it wasn't working. So we were delving a little bit deeper, so I must admit I'm deviating. But I I really believe, Melissa, you can't dilly-dally and you can't carry, and we are working the steps, but I also believe like a ticking off a box or not getting to the problem at hand wouldn't have helped me. So I'm, I'm always caught between a rock and a hard place. I don't know. I know with another sponsee, um, definitely doing it the way my sponsor coached me because I felt that was the way she needed. I don't know what's right or wrong, but I do know that both sponsees are still abstinent, they are abstinent, and they are working the program very diligently. 
I have an, another response that I took to the step. Mm, kind of half and half as well, and she's doing very well. And then there's one that's sort of struggling a bit. So I know that's not much of an answer, but it's almost like a, it's almost personal. If they need it, I'll take them a little bit deeper. I wish I could do it the vision way. I truly believe in it. It just wasn't my experience. Thanks so much, Melissa C., for your question. And now we're going to go with Kathy M.R. Your question, please, for Lynn. Hi, am I being heard? Well, you sure are. Okay, great. Thank you, Lynn, for your lead. It was really good to hear today. Um, I'm not really sure how to form this question, but something you said when you were talking about your mom and your childhood and, you know, you would come in the house and go in the fridge and your mother would take up tranquilizer. I... I did not have that exact situation. Um, I was raised by compulsive overeaters, and in our household, it was just the way of life. But I did experience the retaliation and the uh, insults from my mother, particularly occasionally from my father. I guess what I'm trying to ask is we've all come through it somewhat on the other side now. We have found a program of recovery. We have found a spiritual way of life. And I I guess what I don't seem to hear too often from people in program is how how should we be dealing with children who are clearly going through um, at least the early stages of of addiction with food? I mean, maybe just um, I guess I just want to ask for some thoughts from you on that. Like, uh, I don't know how I managed to raise two daughters. They're now in their mid-20s. Um, they do not appear to have eating disorders of any kind, although one does watch her food extremely diligently. The other one does not. Um, but they seem to be of a normal body weight. I don't know how that happened. They were raised by a mother who was compulsively overeating all of their first 20 years. Um, but... I was always very conscious of not insulting them with food in their food behaviors, if you get my drift. Anyway, I don't don't know if that forms a question. I'd just love to hear what you have to think about that. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy. You know, that question is really deep for me. I don't have any kids. And I have seen and heard of parents, you know, who are struggling that with their children. And all I can do is think back to me and my experience. And I think the biggest thing that I missed in my life was unconditional love because there wasn't any unconditional love for this fat kid who was an embarrassment to her grandmother. I remember when my dad died, my grandmother saying to me, you know, your poor father, all he wanted was a boy and he got a fat little girl like you. Like, I can remember those comments. And I'm not saying them to elicit sympathy. I don't mean that. But what I'm trying to say is there never was love for the fat kid. If And I never was a thin kid. So I don't know if I would have had love if I was a thin kid. I don't know. But I do know that from grandparents and mothers, like, um, it was so hard for my mother because my mother was heavy and then there I was fat and my two cousins were thin. So, you know, obviously my mother was doing something wrong to raise a fat kid. So I, 
you know, I was an embarrassment to my grandparents. I was an embarrassment to my mother and shame. I reflected as a bad, you know, bad parenting. Nothing anybody could have ever said to me would have made me stop eating. We all know that because it's a, it's, it's a physical and emotional disease, you know, a problem with the mind. I think unconditionally loving somebody just the way they are would be the best thing. Because dragging me to doctors and being on medication, I was on so many pills for being fat and so many drugs and all this stuff, and none of it made a difference. Maybe somebody could say, you know, my grandparents giving me Weight Watchers at 16 was helpful. I mean, really, it was so nice to be thin at 16. It was for the nanosecond that I lasted. But I honestly don't know. I guess the biggest thing I have to say is unconditional love. I hope that helps. It does. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy MR. There's time and opportunity for more questions for Lynn about her presentation today. If you'd like to ask a question, please press star 1 to unmute your phone and give me your first name and the first letter of your last name. Lorraine N. Diane N. Diane B. Lorraine N. Lorraine N. I have you first. So you get okay. set. And then Diane's going to come in after you. Diane B. Kathy Jo P. Kathy Jo P. Sandy W. Judith M. Sandy W. Judith M. Anybody else? This is your chance. Kathy W. This morning. Kathy W. Mm hmm. Before we wrap this morning, let's go Robin Joby. Robin Joe. Okay, let's let's go with that and see how time allows. Maybe this will be the end. We'll see. So Lorraine and Diane. I'm sorry. What did you say? Gloria Ann, I'd like to make a comment. Well, no comments, please. Just questions. You have a question? Oh, uh, no. Okay, great. Thanks so much. So let me go through the lineup that I have right now. Lorraine N, Diane B, Kathy Jo P, Sandy W, Judith M, Kathy W, and Robin Jo B. Great. Thanks. Lorraine, you're first with your question. Thank you. Um, thank you, Lynn, for your uh, fabulous share. Uh, it was very powerful, and I totally related, having grown up a, you know, a fat kid, a fat adult, and fat, so I... I totally relate, and um, and I too have ramped up my uh, spiritual study recently in the last month or so, and um, making that my goal. Anyway, my question: I heard a previous caller mention vision sponsorship as opposed to another kind of sponsorship, or I'm confused about that. So, if there, could you explain vision sponsorship to me, please? Thank you. Hi, Lorraine. What I was referring to when I was making that statement was time. In vision. Yes, in vision and in the big book and the experience of Bill and Bob and the early people in AA, the steps were worked very quickly. That's what we mean when we say work them like your hair is on fire. Like do it quick. Let's get going. Don't dilly-dally. 
put your mm-hmm. heart and soul into it, but move through them. My own experience was different, but I had already been in program for 28 years and I had a good foundation in it. I really do believe that working the steps quickly can be quite effective and life-saving. I do. It just wasn't my experience. So that's what they mean. The main thing that I can tell you, Lorraine, is the steps have changed my life. Get into them. Get involved. Get a sponsor. Work through them. It will save your life. It is life-changing because we don't have a problem with food. We have a problem with living life. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the question there. Diane B., you're next. And then, Kathy Joe, you'll ha- ask your question after Diane. Diane B., star one. Do you hear me? I do. Yes. Okay. Um, actually, one is a quick question. Is just, is there any step meetings on the, do you do step meetings at all? I'm new to the phone meetings. This particular line is a big book study. So we work through the big book, the first 164 pages of the big book. I'm not familiar with a step meeting. I don't know, maybe you know, Melanie, but not, not here at Vision. Okay, okay. Um, I'm worried, I'm, I'm a very compulsive person, so I'm afraid that I'm being compulsive about um, what I am eating, what I'm not eating, weighing and measuring. And I want to know if that is important, but how do you not, is it another food, like focusing on food instead of God when you obsess about if you're eating the right amount of food and not eating the wrong food? How did you do it, Lynn? I certainly can relate to that because from time to time, my focus shifts on the food as well, you know, and whenever that happens, I realize there's something else going on in my life and that's why I'm focusing on the food because it never really is the food. What I would really recommend is get involved really deeply with your sponsor, work through the steps, that focus will change. You will begin to trust and rely on God that the food that you're eating, if, if you've worked out your binge foods and your binge behaviors, if you have worked out a food plan, you'll become comfortable with that and trust and rely that you're eating what you're supposed to be eating. You know really quickly if you're not. Thank you, Diane B., for the question. Kathy Jo P., your question, and then Sandy W. will come after you. Hi, Kathy Jo. Okay, this is Kathy Jo P., a recovered compulsive overeater in Minneapolis. And my question is, I once heard a saying a long, long, long time ago that a Buddhist um, asked about reading and eating. And the Buddhist leader said, when you read, read, and when you eat and read, or when you eat, eat, and when you eat and read, eat and read. And it sounds like somehow or another you mastered that. And for me, I could never imagine getting there. Um, it might be one of my eating behaviors not to do other things while I'm eating. But what you described, I was fascinated by, and it sounded gorgeous. And I would love to hear more about your God time um, as you eat. 
because what a beautiful thing to be able to bring God into that. And I'd like to hear more about that. I'll pass. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much. You know, it's funny because I would never consider reading a book. I would never consider, you know, like a novel or a course description. There's a yoga course I want to take. Well, I can't read the schedule or anything like that when I'm eating. But for some reason, and I think it was, I think how it started was I threw myself into program like nobody's business when I came in because I was so elated that I had slept through the night and I didn't binge, which, and I slept without taking a gravel. Like, when did that ever happen? I was so high on God and so high on program, I couldn't get enough of it. So I was continually reading program material. So I would take myself out for lunch in the beginning of program. And it's funny, I couldn't get into the big book at first. It was too intense for me. Um, but I could read the steps. And so I would be sitting there and I would be reading the steps when I was eating lunch, absorbing spiritual material. Um, then when I got into my church, there was a gentleman named Emmett Fox, and I really clung to his readings. They were lifesavers for me, so I would be reading those. I can't do anything else. I can't look at a computer. I can't listen to the radio. I couldn't listen to a podcast. I definitely could never eat while listening to a meeting. Like that, that to me is sacrilegious, really. But for some reason, the ability to read a spiritual book, a daily devotional, something like that, AAOA literature, I should, that I can do. I don't know why, but I can. And I think that's one of the biggest things in program for me. There's many things I don't know why. I don't even ask why anymore because why, you know, we all joke it's a management question and we don't manage our own lives. But I am very clear on what's a binge behavior for me and what's not and what can trigger me. For me, the ability to sit down and spend my time with God at breakfast, lunch, and dinner is a gift that I really treasure. And, I, and for some reason, it works for me. I Thank you for the question, helps. Kathy. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question, Kathy Jo P. Sandy W., your question, please, for Lynn. And then Judith M. will follow you. Hi, Sandy. Thanks, Melanie. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for your service always. And Lynn, um, what a powerful share. I got so much out of it. Thank you so much. Um, my question is this. I love how um, specific you are around your compulsive food behaviors, and I'm wondering if you could talk about how you developed them as you were beginning in, in program, as well as how you help sponsees identify their compulsive food behaviors. Because I find I that I kind of, I think I struggle with that. So um, thank you. Thank you, Sandy, for asking that question because it's a, it's a real, um, what's the word, favorite one of mine. Let me put it that way. And I have found that I would say all my, well, most of my sponsors, let's just say most of them have more trouble putting the binge behaviors down than the food. Um, my very first sponsor asked me to write down my binge behaviors, and I was furious with her. Don't, I didn't say this to her, of course. It just went across my forehead like ticker tape. Like, don't you try and pull behavior modification on me. I'm in program, don't you know? But when I got over myself and I sat down and I started to think about it, I realized how unconscious 
I was about how much eating I was doing. Like walking through the grocery store and my hand went out to reach a grape. And I remember stopping dead in my tracks and thinking, okay, Lynn, if you want dinner to be a grape in the aisle of Bruno's grocery store, you can. And I thought, well, I don't want my dinner to be bad. I want to go home and eat a proper dinner. Okay, then don't pick off. <laughs> don't eat in the grocery department. I didn't realize I did that. It never occurred to me. Let me put it that way. I suppose if you asked me, I might have come up with it. But that was one. Uh, I don't taste test anything. And another reason why I don't cook, but I just have to rely that it's going to taste okay. And if it doesn't, that's disappointing. I don't taste test anything. I used to put a meal in the microwave and I'd push the timer and I'd open it and stick the fork in and taste it. Oh, not hot yet. Heat it up again. Heat it up again. Three or four tries, the meal was pretty much gone. So I'd pull it out and I'd think, well, that's not good enough for dinner. So I'd put in another one. Now, if I want to know if something's hot, I stick my finger in it. Then I know. It's either hot or it's not. And that's, that's it. What's another one of mine? Um, meals on meals, no eating in front of the TV. Oh, yeah, no seconds. So I fix my plate in the kitchen, and I bring it out to a table, and I have a placemat, and I have a napkin, and I have a knife and a fork, and it's set, and it's lovely. When I put my meal down and my fork goes in it, and then I went, oh, man, I left the avocado in the kitchen. Too bad. Once my fork is in the meal, I've started eating. There's no get up and get something I forgot, or there's no, oh, I didn't have enough green beans on my plate. I'll just put an extra spoon on. Once the plate is set and my fork has started, what's there is there, and that's the meal. And if I forgot the avocado or the chickpeas or the seeds or the nuts or whatever, tough. That's the way it is because my whole life was more. Or those are free. Green beans are free, so you can have more. The act of me reaching out and putting more on my plate would be like a buffet for me. I can't do it. I also was, was given the definition of food plan when I came in as one plate of food three times a day. That works for me. It makes it very easy. What's on my plate is what's on my plate. There's not a plate and a side salad, a plate and a soup bowl. There is one plate. That really helps me deal with the idea of more. Um, I don't know, like no walking around and eating, no, um, what else? Everything is eaten sitting down at the table. The table is dressed. Uh, can't think of anything else. I'm sure there's hundreds more. I'm just so used to them, I can't think of them. But what I can tell you is it's been a godsend for my sponsees. I get phone calls every day. I didn't realize I ate while I was taking my plate from the kitchen to the table. I didn't realize I ate then. Oh, yes, no picking something off of somebody else's plate. I never knew I did that till I was having lunch with somebody, and they had a dill pickle on their plate, and my hand went out to reach to get theirs. And I thought, oh, my God, I never knew I ate off of other people's plates, and I do not share my food. Nobody gets a taste of anything. This is my food. You have yours. Don't touch my plate. That's about all I can think of. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's about what I come up with. Thank you so much, Sandy W., for your question. Judith M., your question, please. And then Kathy W. will ask hers after you. Hi, this Hi Judith. is Judith M. from Texas. 
Thank you, Lynn, so much. You just hit like, I felt like whack, 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 whack all over the place. But one of my main questions is, I have 33 years in, in AA, and when I pray to God sometimes, I say, I have peace with not drinking and have had that for a long time. I'm off drugs, so I have peace in not doing drugs. I was three packs of cigarettes a day. I have peace in, in, they don't call me. None of it calls me. And yet I've been in and out of the 12-step programs with food since 85, and I don't have peace. I can't seem to, I've gone through the steps. I weigh and measure my food, but there's always a tension there. And when you said that you had not gone to AA for five years, I have been thinking if I step away from AA and give 100% to OA, would things be different? Would I find that peace? And the second thing that you were wonderful at, and I thank you for, is when my mom and I, she was an anorexic bulimic and I was a fat little girl. And when she died, I was 39, she was 59. And I, I laughed and I jumped up and down and I said, thank you, God. Thank you, God. She's gone. She's gone. I don't ever have to deal with her again, which, of course, was crazy because I still deal with her on every time I do the fourth and fifth steps. I deal with her. But how did you do all that? Because you have such peace. You sound like you have such peace with the whole thing. And so, and again, thank you for everything you said. Thank you. This is terrible. I'm having a serious moment. Oh, yeah, the first question. Sorry. Okay. I just want to make it clear. I hung out in the rooms of AA because I believe that that's where the strength and recovery was. I do not have a problem with alcohol. So I went there, and it was part of my uh, scorn with OA. So I could compare the two and say how weak it was. So that's why my sponsor told me I had to stop going to AA and I had to fully get involved in OA. I would never recommend for anybody if they are, you know, an alcoholic to not go to AA. I wouldn't recommend that. But what I can tell you from my own personal experience and what you said, I've been in and out and in and out and in and out. That's the problem. This disease is life and death. And if you're going to join us, join us. Get in. And what I think may help you, because I had to do this myself, it took me three years to become teachable. I had to set aside everything I thought I knew about God, about myself, about others, and about recovery. Because I believe you listed three things you've already recovered from. I had to set aside everything. Because obviously, all that I knew was not helping me now. And if now is your time, and if now is when you're ready to recover, I would urge you to set aside everything. It isn't working now and work this program like your hair is on fire. Get yourself set up with a strong sponsor and work it. And don't 
do what you did before. Try something new. It's amazing. Your whole world will open up for you. And the thing with my mom, what I can tell you is this. I have never in my life worked on anything in program. I did not work on the relationship with my mom. Because before program, that's all I did is I grabbed a problem and I willed it to death. I self-willed it and beat it and struggled with it and hustled with it and fought with it and dragged it up and down and all this stuff and it never made one bit of difference. In program, I have never worked on anything. But I have worked with a passion and an intensity I have never known before and a willingness to do things that I didn't want to do in working these steps of the program, the way they are laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And by working these steps of the program, God has transformed my life. And that's the difference. Maybe that might help. Thank you, Judith, and for the question. Kathy W., your question, please. And then Robin Joe B. will ask hers. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Hi, this is Kathy W., postal reader in Denver. Um, thank you so much for this. Um, it was really good and really helpful. Um, my question is, I'm wondering, what would you say to a fellow that is struggling to make contact and find connection with a higher power um, to be able to move from step two and three and fully surrender and be able to continue past steps two and three? You know, that's a, that's a really good question because my experience was like a lightning rod. So I didn't have that. But what I do know and how it's changed so miraculous for me is because I never had any religious experience, I guess, or religious upbringing. And when I first came into program, I came into a church that was very much God is your father. He's a loving, kind human, uh, not human being, spiritual being that only wants the best for you. And you can talk directly to God like I'm talking to you. I think that was very helpful for me. So I didn't have any preconceived ideas. The only preconceived ideas I did have was I totally mocked everyone who could believe in such a fantasy world and who used to pray and go to church and go to God. Like what a bunch of losers. So I had my own preconceived notions to, to, to um, get over, I guess. But because I didn't have any experience of a punishing God or anything like that, all I knew was what I'd started to pick up by going to this particular church. It was easier for me. What I do know is when I did feel let down by God, like I'm single and I had been praying for somebody in my life for years. And finally, after 10 years of solidly praying, I gave up thinking, well, you know, obviously, God, you're not coming through on this one. And a couple of things in my life uh, concerning my mom, I railed at God about saying, how could this be? You know, you told me to put her in a nursing home and I did. And look what happened to her like where I was really angry with God, I would let him know. And I think the fact that I have a, con a running conversation with God all the time in my head helps make it more, uh, more of a connection. 
and maybe that might be something that you could do. Like I was always praying to God, like, thank you, God, the sun is out and the grass is green and, and all that stuff. It just came naturally because I never shut up anyway. So my head was always going. It was like about 25 people in my mind. So one of them was always yapping to God. And it was um, very ha- healthy, helpful, helpful. And I still do that. So maybe if you had, if you were able to just start a conversation with God, like he was there with you in the room, maybe that might help. It works for me. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Thank you for your question, Kathy. Robin, Joe B., your question, please. It's your turn. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, thank you, Lynn S., for um, the, the share this morning. And um, I don't know if I even know how to word this. I've been, I, I was thankful I was the last one in this lineup and, and I had so much time, but I, I haven't gotten any closer to it. Maybe it's already been answered with the other um, questions, but I, I seem to, since being in 12 steps um, for nine years, I seem to have taken on this sense of having to multitask. I, I, I cannot just do one thing at a time anymore, it doesn't seem, and I don't know um, if that is, um, just another compulsion or another uh, substitute. What I, you know, I um, so um, you know, it's very hard for me to sit at a table and eat and just focus on the food. That's very hard for me. Just like it's very hard for me, um, you know, um, to do anything without doing something else. I mean, I have to be listening to a meeting to do housework. I have to be just anything. Is Can you say anything about that? I don't know if that's really a question or I guess it is. Do, do you have any, if I was your sponsor, would you have any um, advice for me in that? Thank you. That's a great question. You're just talking about the first, you know, 40 years of my life. I was always going six ways from Sunday. And I believe that's part of our addiction, that inability to be present. I remember hearing in the very beginning of program, doing what I'm doing right now is the most important thing. And I think they called it being present. I'm not sure. And I remember the delight I, uh, felt when I actually did that and I went, oh my gosh, what I'm doing right now is the most important thing that I should be doing. Actually being present and participating in something. You know, it's paying attention to somebody when they're talking and not doodling or not booking appointments or not looking up this or that. It's really tough because I spent my whole life distracting myself and going six ways from Sunday and never really being there. I was always thinking about what was going to happen or what had happened or what she was going to say or what they were supposed to do or I can't wait to get to the next thing. And, I, you know, when I'm eating, this is another thing. I, I, I hear so many people say this, and I, this is just my personal opinion, of course, but I don't focus on the food and I don't practice mindful eating. None of that stuff works for me. But when I'm eating, I don't do other things aside from read spiritual literature. Because I, I do find that I can eat something that can be gone in a flash and I didn't even notice I ate it. 
But this, uh, this need to always be doing something, to be doing something, to be doing something, that's part of the drive that I used to have. And I'll never forget, I was walking somewhere at work, I guess, or something, and all of a sudden I stopped dead, dead in my tracks and went, oh my God, it's quiet in here. And what I meant was that music that had run through my brain you're stupid, you're fat, you're ugly. You're stupid, you're fat, you're ugly. It was always going, always going, always going. It was gone. And I know we're not talking about the voices in your head, but that was the same. It was another form of distraction, another form of something else going on. I don't know how in the early days I ever retained any information at all because my head was always going, 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 going in, in so many different directions. I believe the ability to do what I'm doing now and put my whole focus into it is part of recovery. I found that has come getting better and better as I recover more. And it's this sort of thing, you know, when you put your focus on God, everything else falls into place. I've found that the uh, voices in my head are down to probably about one or two maybe. And my need to multitask is a lot quiet. I can even sit in the backyard and read a book and not jump up and have to do 12 other things, which is a miracle to me. That never happened before. I don't know if that addresses your question or not, but it's, uh, it's been a profound change in my life, I must admit. Thank you, Robin Joby, for your question. It is the top of the hour, yet I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask one more time if there's at least one person that has a burning question that hasn't been answered today in some form or another of Lynn S. If you are that person or persons with a burning question, I'd love to get your name in the first letter of your last name. Nadia. Margaret D. Nadia. And then there was a gentleman. And then Margaret. Ned. 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 Okay. Gotcha. Ned S. And then Margaret. Is that it this morning? Going once, going twice. Whiskey K. More Z. Whiskey K and more Z. <laughs> okay, that's it. Thank you so much. And this is what I have. If everyone else could please press star one on your phone keypad, except for Nadia B. We'll have then Ned S, Margaret D, uh, Whiskey, and then more Z. Hi, Nadia. Good morning to you. Good morning, Melanie. And then thank you so much for your open share, um, an honest share. Uh, I have a question. What is um, your um, dealing with your immediate thoughts, emotions, uh, disturbances look like today? And uh, what did it start like and what it evolved into? I hope. Well, that's a great question. Thank you. What used to happen is somebody would say something or I would get an email or a text and I would fire off a response as quickly as possible. And I learned very painfully many, many times to not send, respond, do that knee-jerk response because my immediate thought and response was never really good and usually got me into a 
whole world of trouble that I wish I had never pushed send or said that or whatever. And it's so interesting because now I can get a text or an email or somebody can say something. And if it's a text or an email, it's really easy. I just don't answer. And I know often the first response that goes through my head isn't the one that I end up acting with. It's often negative, very often judgmental, and not really how I'm feeling at all. And sometimes I surprise myself and I say, I can't believe that old thought and belief came up again. I, I don't even believe that anymore, but it does. And I found steps four, five, six, seven, eight, nine were instrumental in identifying those old thoughts and beliefs that caused me problems. And over the years and, you know, doing step tens and noticing and saying to friends, I can't believe I'm thinking this when I really don't want to do that at all. I want to say or do this. And then I remember a friend, a very dear friend in program used to say to me, why are you surprised when those thoughts come up? It says in step eight, you know, we'll get these. When these happen, we do this. And I thought that's true. That's true. But over the years, they've softened. They've gone away. And what's even more remarkable, and this again is the power flows in where it is needed. Often a kind word, a kind thought, the most appropriate answer will come out of my mouth. And I'll be shocked. And I'll sit back on my butt and say, where did that come from? That was the grace of God. One of the best gifts in the world I've ever received from the program and doing the work is having those old, negative, judgmental, fearful thoughts, ideas, and beliefs being replaced by kind, compassionate, serene thoughts and feelings. That's the benefit of working the steps. That's a promise. Thank you so much for the question, Nadia B. Ned S., your question, and then Margaret will come in after you with a question. Hi, Ned. Star one. Let's see if we can get him okay. to push star one then. There you are. <laughs> there. There, I, there I am. I keep forgetting if I push star one or not on and off, on and off. I am at the very, very beginning. I have gone to OA meetings in my area, I would say under a dozen times. I don't have a sponsor, but through this vision group, I have a list of sponsors to call. But the question is, I am at the point where how do I know that I am actually communicating with God. And by that, I mean, if you've read Alice in Wonderland, you know, there's a phrase, we can all give ourselves good advice. Is that it? I mean, what is the difference between giving ourselves good advice, like we've always known what the right thing to do is, but this is something else. I left one OA meeting angry, very angry. And it had nothing to do with overeating. It had to do with my business. 
and I railed in the car. And I said, where have you been for me? And a voice came, and it just said, wait. And I said, wait a minute. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. When you give yourself good advice, you know what you're saying. But I did not say that. So it was an epiphany. It was something very, very different. And from that point, I knew I could connect with God. But now, what now? How do I know? How do I know when I'm communicating? How do I know when I'm getting an answer, guidance, and that it isn't just giving myself good advice? Wow, that's a great question. And I was just thinking while you were, while you were talking and how I know the difference is whenever God speaks to me, it's peaceful and it's easy and it flows. Whenever I've come up with a bright idea, there's always a lot of excitement behind it. Not I'll just do this and I'll just do that. Or, Isn't that great? And, and here we go. And there's been many, many times where I've been confused. I'm just thinking of one where I remember saying to a friend, oh, this is fantastic. I found the perfect doctor because it came through my yoga teacher. And look how God's working in my life. And isn't this wonderful? And you know what? It turned out not to be the doctor for me at all. And I was just going to say, see, I was wrong. But I don't think so. <laughs> that could have been. God putting that person in my life for me to be able to realize that that's not the right person. Keep looking. So I, I don't really know. It's, a lot of the times it's a mystery, but what I do know is, and what I am absolutely certain clear on, is when God speaks to me and when the intuitive thought or decision comes to me, that's the grace of God, it's easy, it flows, there's no debate, there's no questioning, and it lands right in my heart, not in my head. And I, I don't even ponder it because it's, it's a part of my, my heart. It's a fiber in my being, and I just know. And that, that comes from a lot of step work, a lot of working the program, a lot of experience. You just don't know from day one. What a wonderful place to be, Ned, starting this great adventure. I'm excited for you. Thank you so much, Ned S., for the question. Margaret D., it's time for your question. You want to press star one, please, and then Rifke will come in after you. Um, thank you. May I be heard? Sure. Oh, 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 good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good morning, and good morning, everybody. This is Margaret D. in Georgia, and I actually have two questions. The first one, which you just so beautifully answered, and I thank you very much for that. The second one is, um, what does that mean between chalk and cheese? And um, with that, I pass. Thanks. I'd have to ask my grandmother. That's just an expression we used to use, just meaning things are totally different. We're totally different, like just like the difference between chalk is one thing and cheese is another. That's all. But what it meant, um, I, I believe I used it in context with my mom, and what I meant there is everything that my mother held dear and sacred to her heart meant nothing to me. And I trod all over those things 
with no respect and probably most likely on purpose to deeply wound her. Uh, and the things that I thought were ever so important, she didn't. And I don't believe she did it the way I did. I don't believe she attacked me with viciousness to get back at me or to hurt me. I just believe that she had a different opinion than me. And I took it as a personal slight and attack. And that was most of the problems in our relationship was how I took what this poor woman just had a thought about. Thank you so much for the answer to that question and for the question, Margaret D. Rivka, your turn, please. Star one with your question. Hi. So my question would be like this. First of all, thank you very much. Very, a lot of good stuff to think about. I'm also very new. Um, very much relating to um, the mother thing. And we are going to be spending time with my child's grandmother, with, with my mother soon. And there's a lot of fear around, is she going to treat her with unconditional love? Any ideas for that? Or could I say something? Should I say something? Thank you. One of the biggest struggles I had in program was being afraid of what people were going to think, say, or do. And it must be especially distressing when it comes to your child. Um, And again, I don't have children, so I don't know. But what I do know is this. Two things, I guess. I have never, since I stepped into program, been able to control anybody and stop them from thinking or saying, doing anything that they were going to do. What has happened in program for me is the reaction that I've had to what they think, say, or do has changed and made it better. I do know that we can't control others. I do know that and sometimes when you need to protect somebody, there are certain things that need to happen. But I, I just can tell you, and I've heard other people online too that have, I hate this word, they've gone and they've confronted somebody and brought something up and it hasn't worked. It's just made the situation worse. And, and, and I believe that my answer has always been for myself in situations like that, prayer and meditation, praying for the other person, praying for myself in this situation, praying for my daughter, asking God for help, sending God there before we get there because we need the love there. It may sound corny, it may sound goofy, but I do it and it has worked for me. And lots of times people are just going to be the way they are and I, I've never been able to change anybody yet, but I have changed I haven't changed. God has changed for me the need to react in certain ways, and it makes life a lot easier. I hope that helps. Thank you so much, Rivka Kay, for your question. Maura Z, Maura Zed, your question this morning for Lynn. Ha, 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 ha. (laughs) Star one, Maura. Give her a moment here. Thank you, Melanie, for your service. I double muted myself again. Oh, goodness. Um, Can you hear me now? 
We sure can. Thanks for. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. Um, glad I could give you a little chuckle there, Lynn. Thank you so much for your share. Just absolutely phenomenal. My mind is racing. Um, I do have a um, question. And that is, do you personally, have you personally, since being recovered, reworked your steps 1 through 12? And if so, do you do it on a regular basis and how often? Thank you, Morrissey. Maura Zed, that's a great question. You know, uh, I I work the steps all the time. And what I mean by that, and my sponsor, I love the way she talks about the steps being fluid. Because, you know, we're always working the steps. You may be on step one on Sunday on something, and then you may be on step seven, and then you're going back and forth. I know I've heard some people say they formally go through the steps 1 to 12 once a year and stuff like that. I've been recovered now. It's coming up to five years. It took me a long, long time to get through them in that five-year period. And I, I don't, it, it's funny, I'm going to say I don't, and that's not true simply because I have joined a second fellowship and in that I'm working through the steps. So I, I am kind of doing it again, but for a different reason. I think if, in my OA career in the last five years, no. But what I have been doing is continually working the steps on stuff as it comes up, not 1 through 12, but 10, 11, 12. Sometimes I have done a 4 through 9. But I really think living in all 12 steps is a way of life. And that fluidity that my sponsor always impressed me upon leads me to believe that, yes, I am doing the steps all the time, 1 through 12, maybe not in order, but, but on, on everything that happens in my life because it's just a way of life. So I, I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but I, I have heard a lot of people say they're working the steps again, they're starting in the beginning and going through, and, and I think that's a great idea, too. I just haven't done it. Thank you, Maura Z, for your question. And that's the last question for today, Lynn. Thank you so much for your presentation. It, it, it was rich and so spot on, and, and the spirit of power was clearly there, and it's clearly flowing in, in, um, in my heart as well, as you described yourself being able to identify and appreciate your contribution today, and it will be forever in our archives for more further teaching and touching in the future. I just wanted to mention Thank the you. share ID Thank number. You, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Just wanted to mention the share ID number again for today, Sunday, July 21st, and that is 13181, 13181. If you want to pass it around, pass it on, or re-listen. And we will close this meeting this morning, as we always do, by reading from page 164 of the big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only, so let's do that. Excuse me. Is there anywhere I can ask a quick question before we close? <laughs> Lindy, you got some time for this last burning one. We got a, we got one here okay. for you. Yeah. Hey, gosh, thank you. Hey, so what much. is your name, please? My name is Irene B. I'm a recording oh, from Louisiana. Hello. I am so sorry, but I thought I came in late, and I really have a burning desire. I would like to know 
that in, what were some things that were particularly helpful to you in identifying your negative thoughts and also the things that were particularly helpful to you. I know that you said that you worked the steps and then that over time you've become loving and considerate towards yourself and so on and so forth. But what specific actions do you think were most powerful in helping you accomplish those things? And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much. Well, that's a loaded question. Let me just see if I can sort out something. I think the biggest thing was, and this takes me back to just a bit different in, in doing, when I did my step four, it took me a long, long time. And in that step four, I identified 26 and 27 or 27 core beliefs and negative thoughts that I had that were skewing my perception of myself, of my life, of the world around me and causing me and everybody around me intense stress and by identifying those and working the steps on those and um, seeing how they disrupted my life over and over again they were like warning flares I was so cognizant of them after all this deep intensive work and when they came up I was able to identify this is the problem here again it's this thought and offering it up to God and asking him to remove it and seeing what the character defects were behind that thought over and over and over again. And as we do that, and as we continue to work the steps, God removes them. That's in my experience. He lessens them. He removes them. All of a sudden, out of my mouth came an answer so many times. I was gobsmacked going, where did that come from? Because that was not my natural reaction. But God changes us, and he gives us the natural reaction that he wants us to have. And it's beautiful. And that was the main thing, an intensive step four, and noting over and over and over again these 27 core beliefs, thoughts, and actions I had that caused me problems. And it's just by working the steps every single day, every time when that thought would come up, realizing what it was and not acting on it. I think, that's, I think that's really the basis. It's the program. The program is a miracle. It's divinely inspired and it works. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What a great way to wrap. That's it, right, in a nutshell. The power of this program targeted exactly where it needs to go, the vicious cycle of the twisted thinking, the negative thoughts. 100% of my mind. So let's move towards closing then today. We'll close with the... Big book on page 164 this morning, exactly where the power needs to flow. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as we trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you. 